Chapter 57 The Iron Al-Hadid In the name of God, the most compassionate, the most merciful. This chapter takes its name from a word in the 25th verse that literally means iron. This chapter was revealed five years after the Muslims' immigration to Medina. At the height of their struggle, when the Battle of the Confederate Tribes took place, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was also signed during this year when the Muslims had attempted to perform Hajj. However, they were discovered, detained, and prevented from entering Mecca. In truth, this particular year, which was arguably a difficult one for the Muslims, would prove decisive for the future of both Islam and the community. In such a dire situation, their only option was to mobilize their strength to safeguard their survival. This chapter, more than any other one, speaks about the importance of financing and supporting the Muslim army with the frequent refrain of spending in the way of God. This Quranic phrase carries strong military connotations, as its only goal is to defend one's very existence. This chapter's first six verses focus on the fundamental principles of divine unity. Tawheed. We can hypothesize that God chose this opening topic because people will voluntarily lay down their life only if they really grasp what they are defending, have a strong worldview, and know why they exist. Whatever is in the heavens and earth glorifies God, the mighty, Aziz, the wise. Hakim Tasbih, to glorify, literally means to float and move toward a specific goal, to strive or to accomplish a positive act or to correct a flaw or deficiency in a system. Therefore, whatever exists serves the system of which it is part and is therefore a servant of the divine will. God says he is Aziz and Hakim. Therefore, God, whose will all of creation must serve, is Aziz because he is utterly above everything else. However, insofar as a monarch with absolute power could be a dictator and a tyrant instead of a benevolent ruler, God mentions the attribute of Hakim, all-wise, alongside his attribute of almighty, to indicate that whatever he does with his power is in accordance with wisdom, and thus neither arbitrary nor tyrannical. Unto him belongs sovereignty over the heavens and earth. He gives life, causes death, and has power over all things. God, the one and only Sovereign of the heavens and earth, holds both life and death 
in his hands and is the sole measure of all things. If this quality were not exclusive, a listener might suppose that God is simply the manager and director of the universe, instead of its sovereign. The verbs, he gives life, causes death, are both in the present tense to indicate that the courses of life and death are always in his hands. It is interesting that God says he also created death, for we often think of death as absence of life, just as darkness is the absence of light. But death is not like darkness in this respect, for God says he created death and life, which indicates that death is actually a tangible created entity that, in itself, represents a separate stage of existence. A useful illustration of this is how a caterpillar is transformed into a butterfly by encasing itself in a cocoon and emerging from it after a certain amount of time has passed. God is the one who gives measure to all things. Qadir signifies the act of determining the connections among all things and apportioning their measure and extent. Life and death also follow well-ordered systems. In reality, a single astounding system, one that rests on a specific kind of measurement and design determined by God, governs the entire cosmos. He is the first and the last, the outward, zahir, and the inward, batin. He has knowledge of all things. In this context, the first means that nothing comes before it and that it has no beginning or end, as opposed to being first in terms of a number. Thus, nothing and no one can come after God, who has no limit or end. God is simultaneously the manifest, Zahir, and the hidden, Batin. He is not Zahir in the sense that he appears somewhere, nor is he Batin in the sense that something hides him from our sight. We can comprehend how the Quran uses the concepts of manifestation and hiddenness because they exist in one form or another in this physical world. Given these facts, God knows everything because nothing is hidden from Him and because only He has truly independent power and sovereignty. Only He can continually create determine, and apportion. He brings order to the cosmos, is without limit, and has full knowledge of time and space, matter and spirit, and of whatever he creates. In short, nothing is beyond his knowledge. He created the heavens and earth in six days, and he established himself on the throne. Harsh. He knows all that enters the ground and all that emerges from it, all that comes down from the sky 
and all that ascends up to it. He is with you wherever you may be, and sees whatever you do. God created the heavens and earth in six stages and in six days. Now, when God says a day, He does not mean a day in our sense, a 24-hour period. On the contrary, His day could have lasted for millions of our years. Days, here, signifies successive periods of time that are connected to one another each stage of which represents another jump that leads to the following stage. Arsh, throne, refers to a ceiling and signifies authority and governance over something. This verse is an example of the Quran's highly symbolic and allegorical terminology. In short, after completing the six-stage creation of the heavens and earth, God sat upon the harsh, meaning that he began to govern the created cosmos in a way designed to guide it toward perfection and to set events in motion. God knows everything that goes into the ground, being the rain that falls upon it, as well as what will emerge from the ground, like springs, streams and rivers and every water molecule that ascends evaporates up to the sky. As he is present with all natural phenomena, God is fully aware of all such things. If that is the case, then is he not also present with us and therefore fully aware of whatever we do? God is never apart from us and having this certainty is one of the highest levels of faith. Of course, no believer actually denies this fact, but we just let ourselves forget it once in a while, given that some of our actions are hidden from others. Unto him belongs sovereignty over the heavens and earth, and unto him are all things brought back. There is no other sovereign of the heavens, earth, and the entire cosmos. The first sentence also appears in the second verse, but with a different conclusion. There, God's sovereignty refers to His giving of life, causing death, and determining the cosmic order. In this verse draws a different conclusion on the basis of God's absolute and unrestricted sovereignty. All the universe's affairs return to him, because none of his directives and orders can ever go beyond his system. In fact, this verse explains this system of cosmic governance. Now, if everything returns to God, will we not return to him as well? When all of the universe's affairs and systems go back to him, is there any possibility of an alternate destination existing somewhere in this world? This is how God lays the groundwork for discussing death and resurrection. He causes the night to pass into the day, and the day to pass into the night.
He knows what is in every heart. Day changes into night, and night changes into day, one second at a time, drop by drop, just like rain. As opposed to beginning or ending abruptly, days and nights gradually shift from one to the other and back again, so slowly that we almost do not notice it. No life could have possibly existed if day and night alternated suddenly. God is fully aware of the contents of people's hearts. What secrets do our hearts possess other than our entire positive and negative attributes? All of which God is deeply and profoundly aware. Up until this point, this chapter has been dealing with the precepts of divine unity, Tawheed. Before trying to change people, we must first change how they view the world and help them understand why they need to support and spend in His cause. Believe in God and His Messenger and spend of that over which He has appointed you as trustees. For those who believe and spend, theirs shall be a great reward. Basing itself on this premise, the Quran instructs people, Believe in God and His Messenger. The Prophet is someone who has been appointed and entrusted by God to deliver His message to the people. It then tells people to Spend of that over which He has appointed you as trustees. In other words, although you have temporarily been given some worldly power, all forms of power and authority will eventually pass to someone else. And yet, for some reason, those who attain power fancy that they will hold it forever. Wealth, which also has been handed down to us, soon passes to others. The Quran says that those believers who have faith and spend out of what they have been given shall receive a great reward. Infaq, to spend, literally means filling gaps and fulfilling the needs of society. Why do you not believe in God when the messenger calls you to believe in your Lord? And he has already made a pledge with you, if you are believers. The Quran asks, so why will you not believe in God? This question, surprisingly, is addressed to the Muslims. But if they already have faith, what exactly is meant here? If you have faith, then God has taken a pledge from you a pledge that exists both in your innate nature, fitrat, and your intellect, aql. Therefore, one who has faith should know that not only have God and the Prophet said so, but so has your conscience, which is deeply rooted in your nature. He sends down clear signs to his servant to bring you out of darkness into light. Indeed, God is truly kind and merciful to you.
God asserts that he is the one who sends down manifest signs to his servant, not in the literal sense, but in the sense of bringing the higher realities down to your level of understanding, in order to free you from all kinds of darkness, like fear, ignorance, anxiety, greed, and bring you into the light. The meaning of light is not the physical light that illuminates the world around us, but the light of a person's good deeds, which have a light of their own, and springs forth from divine guidance. Finally, God reminds his audience that he is most kind and merciful because he has set in motion mechanisms that always guide people out of darkness and into light. This concern for us can only come from his kindness and mercy. Why do you not spend in his way when the inheritance of the heavens and earth belongs to him? Those who spent and fought before the victory are not equal with the rest of you. Rather, they are greater in rank than those who spent and fought afterward. God has promised to each believer that which is most beautiful and is aware of whatsoever you do. After asking why you will not believe, God here asks why you will not spend in his way. At this time, the Prophet was asking the immigrants, those who had left Mecca empty-handed, to donate what they possessed in order to defend Islam, as well as the Ansars, who had given half of their wealth to the immigrants. Those were the ones whom God was addressing. He asks his audience, Do you think you can take your wealth to the grave with you? when God owns all that exists. If people genuinely reflected upon this point, how and why could they cling so tightly to those temporary material things that will one day be passed on to someone else? These two groups are not equal. One will reach a higher spiritual station than those who join only after the problems have been solved and life has become easy. It is only the striving and sacrificing during difficult and hard times that acquire special importance. And yet, God has promised good for both groups. Should not the latter group have been condemned? even though members of the first group have a far greater reward waiting for them, anyone who has contributed something, no matter how small, will also have his or her efforts accepted, because after all, they are believers. Who will lend God a goodly loan? He will multiply it and give that person a generous reward. God asks here, Who will give me a loan? He, who gave us all that we have, now asks us to return part of it to him as a loan. However, 
he does not mean just any loan, but a goodly loan, one that comes with no reproaches and no strings attached. God will repay this loan in multiple folds, which should encourage us to do as he asks. God says only a few times that he will give someone a generous reward. There is a difference between a noble and a material reward, as shall be explained later. Up until this verse, this chapter has focused on this world. It now shifts to the hereafter. On the day when you, Muhammad, will see the believing men and women, their light shining forth before them and on their right hands, and will hear it said to them, Glad news for you this day, gardens under which rivers flow, in which you are to stay eternally. That is the supreme triumph. This chapter divides the faithful into two groups, male and female believers who give charity and thereby implement their faith. We imagine that only those who have a job and earn an income are required to spend. However, here, men and women are mentioned together, which shows that both of them can contribute, whether on the battlefield, behind the lines, or at home raising the children. Light is used elusively here to signify finding one's way, for in this world it illuminates people's path and enables them to reach their destination and achieve their goals. In Arabic, yameen, right, carries an aura of purity and auspiciousness. This emphasis on the light indicates that it will illuminate their path toward perfection and right guidance. Some say that the strength of each person's light is proportional to his or her faith. In any case, there will be a group of people whose way will be lit for them in the hereafter. The faithful are congratulated and given the good news that they have attained paradise under which rivers flow. The Quran always describes paradise in this way to show the source of its lush abundance. The verse's message is of the utmost importance. Paradise is eternal and everlasting. The supreme triumph consists of making it across the deserts of life, and victory consists of making it through while avoiding the evil of the devils that inhabit this world. On that day, when the hypocritical men and women will say to those who believe, Look at us so that we may borrow from your light, it will be said, Turn back and seek for light. Thereupon a wall with a gate will separate them. The inside of the castle contains mercy while on the outer side lies punishment. Here, male and female hypocrites are mentioned together as believing men and believing women were in last verse.
This pair does not comprise atheists, but those who claim to believe but do not spend in God's way. On the day of judgment, the hypocrites will say to the true believers, Look at us, hoping to attract some of their light to illuminate their path, or have some concern for us, for they hope that the faithful will help them. Being told to turn back means to this world, and seek for light, for one can find this light for the hereafter only in this world. From these words, the hypocrites will understand that the rules of the place in which they now find themselves differ from those of our world. If you did no good deeds here, then no light is waiting for you there. The Quran presents this allegory to help us understand the importance of how our actions here affect our eternity. While these two groups are speaking, a barrier will form between them. Thereupon a wall with a gate will separate them. Like a fortified wall that might be seen surrounding a castle. Therefore, being inside one was a mercy, and being outside was a punishment. One gains entrance and safety only by having genuine faith and spending in God's way. Now, let's look at the exchange between these two groups in more detail. They will call out to them, Were we not with you? They will reply, Yes, but you allowed yourselves to be tempted, waited and were doubtful, were deluded by vain desires until God's command came. Moreover, the deceiver tricked you concerning God. The hypocrites will call out, We were with you, meaning that they and we had gone to the same mosque, belonged to the same family, and were husband and wife, siblings and colleagues. The faithful will respond, Yes, that is true. However, you cast your own souls into temptation. You waited. You procrastinated and delayed. This is like saying, We are still young. We can repent when we are old. Of course, the door of repentance is always open, but how do you know when you will die? And were doubtful. In other words, your faith was neither firm nor certain because you wondered if there would really be a resurrection, despite the countless verses in which God says, Do not worry, for I will compensate you for all that you spend. And still, you were reluctant to believe him, and were deluded by vain desires. Hopes and ambitions you wanted to fulfill distracted you from your true purpose in life. You were so distracted by your far-fetched hopes that you forgot about the hereafter. Did you think you were meant to live forever? You thought that his mercy was so expansive that he would naturally forgive your countless sins. 
True, God is the most merciful of the merciful, but He is also the all-wise and most just. If you thought He does, then you have been deceived. So this day no ransom can be accepted from you or from those who disbelieved. Your home shall be the fire. That is your master and the end of a wretched journey. In this world, people who break the law might have the option to say, no problem, I'll pay the fine. But on the day of judgment, no one, neither a hypocrite nor a sincere believer, will be able to pay a ransom to escape the punishment. Inside the very place in which you took refuge, you have actually been burning for your entire life because your real master is the money and sins to which you are so attached. In short, you have only yourself to blame for your present condition, whether it is good or bad. Has not the time come for those who believe to have their hearts humbled to the remembrance of God and the truth that has come down, so that they will not be like those who received the book before. But the span of time was too long for them, such that their hearts hardened. Many of them were iniquitous. This verse is not addressed to the polytheists, the faithless, or those who are ignorant of Islam but to the believers, those who claim to know about Islam and profess their belief in it while continuing to behave like the faithless. Here, the Quran asks them if it is not time to finally change their ways and for the hearts of the faithful to become humble. Unlike those who were sent scriptures before, like the Jews and the Christians, in relation to the remembrance of God and the truth that He had revealed, He gave them ample time and respite, and nevertheless their hearts hardened and gradually forgot the divine message that had been sent to them. Most people squander their God-given potential by pursuing worldly goals, prosperity, and a comfortable life, and thus ending up ignoring the bounds and laws he established for humanity as a whole. Know that God gives life to the ground after its death. We have indeed made the signs clear for you, that perhaps you may apply reason in order to understand them. The Quran informs us that God gives life to the ground after its death. Here, God wants us to ponder and draw a moral from one example of nature's transformation. How the frozen, dead ground of winter gives way to the live ground of spring. We could be in a spiritual winter, meaning that the very core of our being has frozen and thus has lost its former access to the warmth of faith. However, God can revive our spirit through His revelation. Just as rain revives a barren land, 
the rain of God's mercy can water and revive our spirits. This potential is within every person right now. Observing the natural order enables you to revive yourselves, just as the warmth of spring revives the barren ground. If you want to bring spring into your heart and have its scent fills your being, live according to the book of God and strive to understand its meanings. Charitable men and women who give charity and lend God a goodly loan will have it multiplied and thus receive a generous reward. Charitable men and women refers to those who spend their wealth for God's sake. You have claimed to be Muslim and that you have sincere faith and submit to God. Giving charity proves that you are telling the truth, for helping others makes your faith visible. If you do not assist others, your claims are false, for sadaqa means that your deeds match your words. Thus, a siddiq is someone whose behavior, life, and very being are identical with his or her belief. This chapter was revealed at a time when Muslim society was in dire need of people to contribute to its defense, for enemies were besieging from virtually every direction. Such people are described as those who have given a goodly loan to God. If you spend out of your wealth for the sake of defending your community, it is as though you have given me a loan. He promises to pay this loan back several folds and give the donor a noble reward, one that is both material and spiritual, that will endow them with dignity. Those who believe in God and His messengers are the truthful ones who will bear witness before their Lord. They have their reward and their light. And as for those who disbelieve and deny our signs, they are the inhabitants of the hellfire. Those who believed in God and His messengers are also counted among the truthful. The related word, shahid, means someone who is present, bears witness, and is a model for others. Faith is compared to light because, just as physical light shines upon the people's path and allows them to progress on their journey, the light of faith shines upon humanity's path toward progress, happiness, and felicity. A disbeliever is someone who actively covers the truth and refuses to acknowledge it. This verse is speaking about the companions of hellfire. To accompany something means to be of the same kind and to have the same thoughts as it and, as a result, to be attached to it. Thus, the very being of such people is similar in nature to that of hell. The next verse describes the life of this world 
so that we can ponder what it is that we love about it and why we are so attached to it. Know that life of this world is surely only a game. Diversion, pageantry, boasting among yourselves, and rivalry in respect of wealth and children. This resembles vegetation after rain, for its growth is pleasing to the farmers. But afterward, it dries up, turns yellow, and then became straw. In the hereafter, there is severe punishment and also forgiveness from God, as well as contentment, whereas the life of the world is but the enjoyment of delusion. This is how the Quran sums up the truth about this world in a single passage corresponding to the different stages of human existence. Life starts as a game because all children born into it only play games until they become youths aware of the type of enjoyment surrounding them. This is the diversion, namely, the fancies and imaginings that slowly begin to consume them. Youths pursue beauty, for this is the time when the desire for sexual enjoyment, self-presentation, and physical beauty is strongest in them. After they get married, the competition, showing off, and boasting begins. As they choose a profession and find their place in the world, they begin to compare their position to that of others. As they grow older and lose their youthful vigor, they begin to accumulate wealth, property, and savings on the grounds that this is what life is all about. Some people will stop at one of these levels, while others will continue pursuing them well into their old age. This cycle resembles when the rains come and make the land verdant. At first, young and small plants gradually grow and sprout leaves and flowers. Then, one day, all of this greenery turns yellow, and on another day, it withers and crumbles to a dried-out and disintegrated leaf. Human beings are no different. Those who are currently enjoying the spring of their life should closely observe what happens in nature. This cycle of life and death continues without end. These periods of excitement and youth inevitably end and are replaced by desiccation, weakness, and old age. After that, all that is left for them are withering away, dying, and disintegrating. Hereafter, there is severe punishment and forgiveness from God. Those who failed in this worldly school and did not study or prepare to pass the entrance exam will suffer in hereafter. But there's also forgiveness from God. Ridwan means satisfaction and pleasure. Does God need to be pleased with our deeds? Whenever the Quran uses terms like pleasure in connection with God, 
They are allegorical. What pleases God is to be in harmony with the system He has created. Whatever displeases Him is not in harmony with this system and its laws. The life of this world is nothing but deceptive enjoyment. In other words, these enjoyments have no depth, for they are superficial, temporary, and fleeting in nature. Based on the previous verses, we should wake ourselves up, humble our hearts, observe closely what happens in nature, and revive ourselves, knowing full well that this world is nothing more than a deception. But what must we do after this? Race with one another for forgiveness from your Lord, and a garden whose breadth is as the breadth of the heavens and earth, which is prepared for those who believe in God and His messengers. Such is His bounty, which He bestows upon whom He will and is infinite. Here, God uses the language of competition and speed. God says, overtake one another in good deeds. Vie with one another to reach your Lord's forgiveness, which cleanses the human being. Compete with others to reach paradise, whose extent is that of the heavens and earth. In other words, paradise is the size of the cosmos. Does our life in eternity not have as much value to prepare ourselves for it and do our best to attain it? The Quran urges us to try our hardest to win the race to eternity. Our brief sojourn here cannot be compared to what awaits us there. This future is guaranteed, a reward for those who believed in God and His messengers which in itself is a form of divine grace and generosity. God bestows this grace according to His will and His decrees to those who are steadfast on His path and who are therefore worthy of it. Nothing of disaster befalls earth or yourselves unless it is in a book before we bring it into being. Truly that is easy for God. Anyone who sets out on this path should expect to face problems. It is said that all believers, in their capacity as unique individuals, are tested according to the level of their faith. Therefore, the prophets are tested more than anyone else. Whatever trials people face, such as natural or personal disasters, these were all written in the book that existed before the world was made, before you or anyone else walked upon this planet. Although these trials may seem random or unexpected to us, this is not the case with God, for He is the one who created and then implemented the single set of laws that determines everything that happens. Thus, he cannot be absent or unaware of what is going on. 
Given this reality, we should not become overly distressed when struck by misfortune because God has already foreseen it and planned for it. After all, He is absolutely good and does not will anything evil to happen. But perhaps one might ask, how can God possibly plan all of this in advance? The Quran answers, truly, that is easy for God. Do not grieve for the sake of what escaped you, nor exult because of what has been given. God does not love vainglorious boasters. God wants us to know that we should not expect our material and social possessions to remain with us until we die, or be overly gladdened by the things that He gives us. The Quran says we should steer a middle and balanced course to avoid these two extremes. All human beings are surrounded by unavoidable difficulties, for such things are part of the divine governing system. Knowing that these events are neither random nor devoid of purpose prevents us from becoming so attached to this world that we grieve when we lose something or become overjoyed when we obtain the same thing. God does not like those who overcome by their own imaginings, thinking that they are very important because they hold a high status, or those who show off by flaunting their achievements and possessions, or those who are miserly and enjoin others to be miserly. Whoever turns away, still God is the self-sufficient, the praised. The Quran now reveals the goal for which human beings were brought into being. We sent our messengers with clear proofs and revealed with them the scripture and the balance so that humanity may observe right measure. And he revealed iron, in which is mighty power and many uses for humanity, so that God may know those who will help him and his messengers, although unseen. Truly God is strong, mighty. God says he sent his messengers with clear proofs, either a miracle or a scripture, that showed the person in question had been sent by God. God also sent them the book and the balance to represent these clear proofs. The book refers to the religion's laws and all of its teachings that possess a legal dimension, both the religious and cosmic laws, like the laws of nature. The Quran, as a scripture, is also called Al-Mizan, balance, or Al-Furqan, criterion, both of which reflect its different aspects. Thus, it can be used to measure other things because it represents the gold standard by which the measure of moral values can be known. The book and the balance were sent so that the messengers could establish justice in all nations. These well-known verses are incredibly important because they explain why God sent messengers. In this verse, Liyakum, standing, 
is used not only in the purely political sense of uprising, but also in opposition to sitting still. But why should people stand up? They should stand up for the sake of justice, which means to give all individuals their fair due. Therefore, God sent messengers to establish social justice to confront men like Pharaoh, tyrants, oppressors, and the arrogant, who are always ready to subvert and undermine justice. After this, God says that he sent down iron, hadid, a very strong, firm and durable metal that can also be used to describe power on the battlefield. Consider all of the industries that depend upon it and the beneficial alloys used in crafts, such as making armor and other protective items to defend in cause of justice and also provide other uses for humanity. He created iron to see who would use it for these purposes to defend the spiritual values taught by himself and his messenger. That being said, God also reminds us that he is all-strong and almighty, and thus is beyond any need for human assistance. The chapter now informs us of examples from history and the earlier prophets. We sent Noah and Abraham and placed the prophethood and the scripture among their offspring, some of whom were rightly guided. However, many of them were iniquitous. Two of those who stood up for justice were Noah and Abraham. God says that he ordained prophethood and scripture for their descendants, some of whom were also appointed as prophets. Nebi, prophet, refers to the one who received knowledge from the unseen world about God, the immutable laws that govern morality and the cosmos, and the afterlife. Some of the people followed these prophets and were guided as a result. Many others rejected them and went outside the bounds of obedience. Then we sent our messengers to follow in their footsteps. We sent Jesus, son of Mary, with the gospel and placed kindness and mercy in the hearts of his followers. They invented monasticism. We did not ordain it for them, only to seek God's pleasure. Yet, they did not observe it properly. We gave those who believed their reward. However, many of them were iniquitous. So the prophets came one after another. Just as each teacher's lesson builds upon and strengthens an earlier teacher's lesson, all of whom are following a single curriculum and coordinating their efforts. God gave the gospel, which literally means the good news, and denotes a scripture that brought glad tidings to Jesus, the son of Mary. God put two things in the hearts of those who followed his teachings and emulated his practices, kindness and mercy. In other words, 
their followers were kind and sympathetic toward others, especially the less fortunate. The Quran asserts that monasticism was an innovation copied from the Christians. In this case, to become a monastic means to renounce marriage. These monastics said, because we live in fear of God, we should not get married. Instead, we should dedicate all of our time and ourselves to His service. However, God says that He only ordered them to seek His pleasure by acting in accord with the divine will. Because they did not do so in this case, they failed to earn His pleasure despite their strict lifestyle and became fixated on religiosity's outward appearance in a state of deprivation. O oh, you who believe, be mindful of your duty to God and have faith in His Messenger. He will double His amount of mercy for you, appoint for you a light in which you shall walk, and will forgive you because He is forgiving, merciful. God addresses and admonishes those who have faith to also have God-awareness and God-consciousness, self-control, as well as to believe in His prophets. In return, He will double His mercy upon them. Thus, this is an increase in mercy rather than two different kinds of mercy. His appointing a light to illumine their path suggests that their path in life will be clear and that their interactions with others, regardless of belief, will be guided. Now, why does God give this promise and hope to Muslims during such difficult times when they were surrounded with hostile forces and the nearby Jewish tribes who were plotting to extinguish this light? Because the people of the book who should have been in agreement with the Quran, rejected it and opposed the believers with every fiber of their being. God says, He will efface the effects of your sins and past misdeeds because He is the all-forgiving, the most merciful. So that the people of the book may know that they control nothing of His bounty all of which is in his hand, and he will give to whomsoever he wills, for it is infinite. The people of the book need to realize that they cannot accomplish anything on their own. This verse indicates that God has sent a new prophet with a new lesson for humanity, and that humanity cannot just cancel the class. In another verse, the faithless can neither conceal nor extinguish this light of truth. This is just one of the graces that God has bestowed upon you. As all grace is in God's hand, He bestows it as He wills and through the systems He has created. Reflecting on everything we have just read, we must abandon the narrow confines of our sectarian prejudices. Given that God has willed that the world should be filled with light, 
those who are doing their best to prevent this cannot succeed. And therefore, despite all of these hardships and tribulations, truth will inevitably prevail.